Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show on this fine Monday, September 12th. I'm glad to join you. We've got a lot to discuss today. We're going to be talking about a number of news items that uh, may be a big deal or may not. The left is making a lot of Trump's arrival in D.C. this morning. Uh, they're pointing to images of him and uh, supposed irregularities uh, that they see in the images. Uh, Twitter was just absolutely ablaze with speculation from the left that the reason Trump arrived on a government plane is because he is surrendering himself to be arrested in Washington, D.C. There was talk of Trump wearing golf shoes. Well, he must have just been pulled right off the golf course. That's what it must be. And uh, George Conway, of course, the obese husband of Kellyanne Conway, he was pointing to Trump being picked up in SUVs where the plates said U.S. government on them rather than having D.C. plates. George Conway said that if it was a secret service, the plates would say District of Columbia, not U.S. government. So presumably he must be uh, under arrest. That must be what's happening here. Well, of course, we can go point by point. We can't debunk all of these claims from the left, but there are there are just so many out there, we would end up spending the whole show on them. We would end up spending the whole show talking about this. I mean, for example, this whole business of the license plates. Well, if you're talking about the presidential detail, uh, you know, the beasts, the big limos and all of those cars, they pretty much all have Washington, D.C. plates on them. They don't have U.S. government plates. They have standard Washington, D.C. plates as if you would, you know, not recognize these big armored cars as sticking out anyway, or the fact they're driving in a giant convoy. But yes, they do have District of Columbia plates. However, Trump was flying into Dulles. Dulles happens to be pretty close to Trump's winery, his uh, vineyard up in Sterling, Virginia, north, uh, basically northwest of Washington, D.C. And of course, that's where Trump was seen shortly after all of this panic on the left, all of this fervor took over Twitter, and they were speculating that he was, in fact, under arrest. No, Trump was not uh, under arrest. That's not what was happening here. It's like, if you're Donald Trump, man, you can't come to Washington, D.C., and you be you can't come to Washington, D.C. without sparking speculation. And it's like, no matter what you do, it can be taken the other way. Oh, he's wearing a suit? That's because he's appearing for court. Oh, he's wearing golf clothing? That's because they pulled him off the golf course. Oh, the plates say District of Columbia. That means they're driving him into jail in D.C. Oh, the plates say Virginia or they say uh, U.S. government. That means that uh, it's not the Secret Service and it's the FBI. So <clears throat> they have all kinds of uh, speculation taking hold on the left about why Trump is, in fact, in the Washington, D.C. area. Like I said, he is uh, going to his vineyard in Sterling, Virginia. He's been seen on the golf course there now. So uh, presumably he was wearing golf shoes because he is playing golf and he was dressed casually because he's doing something casual. And he was picked up in a car that said uh, federal government because he was being driven by the federal government and not Biden's presidential detail out of D.C. So that is uh, presumably what is taking place here. Now, could it be something uh, more sophisticated? Could there be something more going on here? There could be. Uh, there certainly could be. I just don't see any, any indication of it here uh, as we speak at, at 2 p.m. Eastern time or so on Monday. Uh, now, I want to talk to you about what's happening in the midterms. If you've been following the news at all, you have noticed that uh, it appears the polls are closing. The gap is closing. We came into this year and uh, Republicans were riding a big wave led by Inflation, the fact that inflation was totally out of control. Uh, earlier this year, there were even food shortages at a lot of grocery stores. I haven't seen those so often lately. If you happen to be watching live here on YouTube, maybe you can put in the chat uh, if you have seen food shortages continue across the country. But it wasn't just food. Of course, there were also other supply chain issues, uh, things not making it over from China, the ports jammed up. Mayor Pete not running the Department of Transportation terribly well, it appears. All of that was bo boosting Republicans' odds of, of winning the Senate and winning the House come November. Well, now the media tells us, as we get within 
couple months of the midterms here. Now the media is telling us that, no, 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 uh, Republicans are not way ahead in the polls. The gap is closing. In fact, they're telling us that maybe Democrats are keeping control of the Senate. The polls say that Dr. Oz is launching ahead of John Fetterman in the midterms. Uh, or rather, the other way around. The polls now say that, 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 that Fetterman's way ahead of, of Dr. Oz. And this is really one to me that's particularly hard to believe. You look at Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz, for all of his faults, is a dynamic television star. I mean, he, he is a dynamic TV personality. The way that he works a stage, the way that he works the crowd, his way of speaking, he is a, a total pro in the television sense. He's well-dressed. He's reasonably handsome. He has huge name ID. And then you go to John Fetterman, who is six foot 10, 450 pounds, recently had a stroke, constantly fumbles and mumbles his words. He's way far left. I mean, Dr. Oz is kind of a center-right Republican. Fetterman is way far left. I mean, he just wants to release violent killers onto the streets. He is basically about as far left as Ilhan Omar or, or AOC. That is where John Fetterman comes from as a presumptive uh, senator, as somebody who, who wants to seek a seat in the U.S. Senate from a state like Pennsylvania, which is really a, a purple state. So it's hard to believe for me that, that Dr. Oz is way behind John Fetterman the way that the media is telling us he is. And I'm going to tell you what's actually going on in the midterms. I see somebody in the poll here, in the, uh, in the chat here says, I have seen less on the shelves for sure. So I guess it's still going on in certain parts of the country uh, to a large degree. And, and I've seen that here too. You know, even at Walmart, certain things just kind of missing. It's kind of just missing off the shelves. Like, where's that? Oh, it's out. Just the pedestrian items, not, not anything special. Oh, we're out of that. I saw a can of soup recently over $4 at a, at a local grocery store in Northern Virginia. So what's really going on in the midterms? Why are the gaps closing? Why is the gap closing? Why are Republicans uh, not as far ahead as they once were? Well, I'm going to tell you exactly why. And, and this is something that fools people every election cycle. Sometimes you go into an election cycle and you just do have one candidate who is way ahead, who is way ahead uh, in the presidential race. Maybe one party is way ahead on the generic ballot in the House or way ahead in the Senate. And there's a problem with one candidate being way ahead of another, one side being way ahead of another. The problem uh, for the media when that is the case is that less advertising purchases take place. So if you have a race and somebody's up 70 to 30, the guy who's at 70 doesn't spend a lot on ads because he's up so big. And the guy who's at 30 doesn't spend a lot on ads because he's down so big, it's not going to make any difference. He may as well keep the money to give to a pack later on or, or whatever they're going to do. And so what the media does predictably, any cycle where you have an election that uh, one candidate's way ahead of the other, what the media, what they do as they get closer to the election day usually about 90 days to two months beforehand, 90 to 60 days as you count down to election day, is that they then start putting out polls and suggesting that, uh, in fact, the gap is closing. It's much closer than anyone thought all of a sudden. They never really have an explanation for why, at least not a good explanation. And that is aimed at getting candidates to spend more on ads with those same media companies as they get closer to election day. That's what it's all about. It's about milking the advertising dollars from these campaigns. And that's what you see taking place this year. It's no different than any other cycle. In fact, I, I recall, you know, one, one big year where this happened in particular was 2012, where it was pretty clear to most people that Obama was going to beat Romney in the election. But as Election Day drew closer, the media began to say that, no, 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 uh, Obama's not that far ahead. In fact, Romney could pull this out. Romney could win. Well, that was aimed at getting Romney to spend all of his money, put himself over the top and getting the Democrats to play defense and spend more money on ads. So you have to look at who's putting out the ads. And, and of course, most of these ads, if they aren't totally run by the media, like an ABC News, Washington Post poll or a, uh, a poll like that, 
they are at least in part run by the media, New York Times, Siena College. So it's usually two institutions that team up for the poll, and at least one of them is a media outlet. And there are all kinds of different ways that you can steer and manipulate a poll, as you know. Who do you actually call? How do you pose the question? What time of day do you call? All these methodology questions can shift a poll as much as 10, 15, 20 points. And it happens all the time. And despite the final outcome of the 2020 election, what we can say is that the polls for the 2020 election were just as bad or worse than the polls for the 2016 election. And I don't think that that is an issue isolated to Trump being on the ballot. I do not think that is an issue isolated to Trump being on the ballot. Somebody says here in the chat, aside from gas, inflation is horrible still. I think people are accustomed to high prices from fast food all the way to televisions. Yeah, inflation is still very bad. And, and people forget, perhaps the rate of inflation has come down month over month, slightly. But it's still rising. It's just rising by slightly less than it was rising before. And that makes sense because if it were rising year over year, you know, 10%, and then the next year it rose 10%, you would be talking about some pretty serious inflation. So of course, the year over year rate, which is put out monthly, starts to starts to, to shrink a little bit, just sort of naturally as, as you move through time. But that is the polling question. I've had a lot of emails in about the polls. Why are the gaps closing? It has a lot to do with the media getting campaigns, getting PACs to throw more money their way on advertising. That is what a lot of this is all about. I want to get to a report here out of uh, Goldman Sachs. This is a Goldman Sachs report uh, concerning energy prices that I want to discuss here. Uh, let's get into this here. Uh, Goldman Sachs has a report out. It's entitled, uh, Europe's energy crisis is at a tipping point. Have you seen this report out? Uh, probably not, but this is out from Goldman Sachs. As the report says, Russia's shutdown of the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline threatens to further squeeze the disposable income of Europeans. Typical family in the, EU could, in the EU could face energy bills of 500 euros per month by early next year without the introduction of price caps, according to Goldman Sachs research, up 200 percent. That is 200 percent from 2021. Samantha Dart, a senior energy strategist at Goldman Sachs, expects the real, citizen, the real effects of the shutdown to still be ahead especially for ordinary citizens. This is a painful process, and it's impacting the European population in many ways. She says ordinary people haven't even felt the brunt of this situation yet. That's what she says. And you got to remember this, too. Uh, Europe, on average, uh, people already have, I would say, far less disposable income than people do in the United States. And, and maybe you haven't dealt with many Europeans. Maybe you haven't traveled through Europe much. But I think there's a perception out there a lot of times that because you have so many different public benefit programs in Europe, that by default, people are a lot richer. I, I've heard that sentiment from a lot of Americans, and I don't think it's the case. And, and when you look at the stats, it's not the case. But a place like Spain, people make very little money. The median income is, 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 is not that high. A place like Portugal, France, Germany, even Austria, the, the, these places are not nearly as wealthy as the United States. Now, uh, somebody points out in the chat here, UK already tap, uh, already capped at 2,500 pounds per year. Uh, yeah, you can put in caps, but somebody pays the price at some point on the chain. And uh, whether or not you've capped the end price to consumers or not uh, d d doesn't make a terrible amount of difference. And it could actually drive prices higher. Because those in the in the game of producing this energy, of transporting energy, et cetera, they can say, well, you know, now that uh, we know consumers can pay for it either way, why don't we jack up the price even more? Uh, what does the latest news about the shutdown of Nord Stream 1 mean for European gas markets? Well, uh, it says here in this Goldman Sachs report, Northwest Europe was already facing a very big gas deficit uh, because of Russian supplies uh, being reduced over the past several months. But they say this is going to uh, hurt supply even more. There's various figures out, various predictions about how much prices might go up, uh, how much energy uh, may need to be cut in terms of people's consumption throughout Europe due to these cuts. Now, I think the first question is, is the Nord Stream pipeline actually down? 
is the Nord Stream pipeline actually down or is it Vladimir Putin closing it down? I think the consensus is here is that it's not some turbine issue, uh, which Siemens would fix. They're the ones who handle these turbines that pump the fuel, as far as I know. The consensus seems to be no, that they're just closing it down because they're punishing Europe for their engagement in this proxy war in Ukraine. That is the consensus as I've heard it, as I've seen it uh, throughout the past several weeks. And it's, and it's a cut that's continued to happen, uh, basically sliced in half several times the amount of gas flowing into Europe. Now, if you are the John Kerry's of the world and many of these European leaders, this should be exactly what you want. I mean, John Kerry, uh, the, the, the global elite uh, climate panic profiteers, these people who go around talking about climate change nonstop, like John Kerry, who it came out last week, has flown 185,000 miles since becoming White House climate czar, often in private or semi-private jets. He's flown all over the world, massive carbon footprint to go yip and yap about climate change, especially in an age of Zoom, why you would do that is just uh, unbelievable. But to these people, they've been trying to close down pipelines forever. John Kerry has been shutting down pipelines all over the United States. They endlessly talk about how pipelines are terrible. They talk about how pipelines are bad. Now, I don't understand this. I mean, it's never made much sense why they go after pipelines. How would you presume you'd like to move the fuel then? On the back of a truck? On a train? It's going to move from point A to point B. Pipelines, insofar as I've ever seen, are the cleanest way to move it between point A and point B. But these people have been going after pipelines forever. They've also been calling for economies to be decarbonized or defossil fueledized or whatever term they use, whatever hot term is on the docket for them at the time. So is Vladimir Putin the ultimate Greenpeace warrior? Should the left be praising Vladimir Putin's cutting the flow of fossil fuels and forcing Europe to use uh, these wonderful technologies? They never stop boasting about how wonderful wind and solar are. Yet they're constantly pumping in more fossil fuels, constantly pumping them in. This person comments, have you ever been to a European home? The appliances are all old and antiquated. Look at how many have low-tier Androids as well. That's true. Uh, they sell a lot of low-tier Android phones in Europe. People just can't afford the uh, expensive iPhones there for the most part. It's uh, very much the case. You see far fewer uh, high-end iPhones in Europe. You know, the, the $800, and uh, $1,200, $1,400 phones, you don't see them there nearly as often. You don't see the expensive computers, uh, not nearly as common. Not nearly as common at all. So it is the case that, of course, Europe still needs all of this fuel. And it is the case that Vladimir Putin can cut it off to them. Now, he's selling oil all over the place. There are these claims out there that Putin's uh, sales of fossil fuels are down 80% this year. I don't think that's true at all. There's a lot of selling out the back door taking place. There's a lot of selling to other countries that he doesn't normally sell to taking place. India has been buying more than ever. They buy at a discount over the counter. Uh, from Russia to save money, and even selling this fuel at a discount, it's still at a much higher price than it was prior to the incursion into Ukraine. So it is something that they're going to have to work out very quickly. And I think what you're going to see, and I've been predicting this for a while, it's not so much a prediction as it is an obvious observation, is that this so-called Western alliance that the multilateralists have been praising endlessly. This Western alliance of the United States and all these European countries, that is going to fracture. And it's going to fracture in a hurry. Because Europe isn't going to just face cold homes. They aren't just going to face shortages in appliances. But they are going to face economic disaster as a result of all those things. Not just recession, but depression, uh, if they don't get energy flowing again. So that is something they're going to have to figure out in Europe, and they're going to have to figure out in a hurry. I think that it's going to be very quickly time to uh, make a settlement with Vladimir Putin. They are going to have to make a settlement with Vladimir Putin and, uh, and get it done quickly. Now, I want to go to uh, a report here about new FBI documents pointing to uh, insider trading by Richard Burr. We remember this investigation, ultimately not indicted. He's now retiring from the Senate. SEC did an investigation. But first, I want to uh, go to a few of your questions here. 
Uh, these are all from donors, various donors, uh, a lot of anonymous donors as well, stepping up to the plate. I appreciate it. I see someone here says YouTube removed super chats already. Not surprised that kind of censorship happens, but you can of course support the show uh, on Cash App at Real Jacob Wool on Cash App, PayPal Jacob at jacobwool.org if you're interested. I have a few notes in here from people who have uh, donated. I'm going to go here to uh, Ryan. Ryan asks, hey, Jacob, I'm loving the show in the live format. Keep it up. I had a quick question about fitness. I'm currently 160 pounds at six foot one. I want to gain maybe 20 pounds of muscle. What is a realistic period of time to do this? Well, Ryan, I think it obviously really depends on your genetics. It appears it, it depends on how much you're lifting. It depends on uh, what kind of frame you have. It depends on how you're eating. It depends on your hormone levels or if you're taking exogenous hormones uh, to support your gaining of muscle. So it depends on a whole host of factors, obviously. I mean, it's just, it's just impossible for me to say based on this note what a realistic period of time is. I would say, you know, 20 pounds of real muscle without the use of anabolic steroids of any kind, you're 61160. Uh, hard to say, but it's going to be measured in the years column, realistically. Of course, you could just be one of those people that just looks at weights and balloons and gains a lot of muscle. But for your average person that I've seen, that's kind of what you're talking about. A couple of years, maybe three years, perhaps. Uh, of, of eating high protein, of going to the gym and, and lifting and progressively overloading your muscles. That's kind of what I've seen. Uh, but it could even be shorter because you're six foot one and, and 20 pounds on somebody who's six foot one is not 20 pounds on somebody who's five foot eight. You, you can gain 20 pounds of muscle quite a lot easier. Now, it, it doesn't look like 20 pounds of muscle on the guy who's five foot eight either. So it's just, it's just hard for me to say based on, on uh, not having seen you and understood more factors. Uh, but thanks for the donation, Ryan, and the note. I go to Lucas here. Uh, Lucas with a with a K. Uh, he says, I've been considering a job opportunity within my company that would move me from Southern California to Northern Virginia. I'm somewhat reluctant to take it despite the higher pay, I guess with the different job and lower taxes, because I'm worried about the bad weather as somebody who left Southern California from Northern Virginia. Do you think I'm crazy? Well, I mean, the weather is certainly worse here. I would say that the general Washington DC area has some of the worst weather in the country. You've got cold winters, although they're not incredibly snowy, typically like they are in, say, New England. Uh, and you have uh, summers that, depending on the summer, I mean, this summer was kind of mild. Last summer was kind of mild. But like 2019, 2020, those were some brutal summers. I mean, I remember like May of 2019 going out at 9 p.m. at night, and it was like 100 degrees and just endlessly humid. So yeah, the weather is a factor. Some other things, the roads, I would say, are you know low speed limits a lot of times and stuff like that. Uh, but you have a lot more freedom here. I mean, better gun laws, lower taxes. The economy is very dynamic here in the Northern Virginia area. You never really have recessions here because it's all supported by massive government money, whether you're a government employee or you're government adjacent. Uh, this area doesn't have the kind of big swoons in the economy uh, that you see in uh, other parts of the country, particularly California, Southern California. Uh, so... That is uh, kind of an issue. Now you talk about, um, you know, somebody mentions here in the chat, the traffic. Yeah, the traffic, um, it's gotten less bad ever since the pandemic hit around here. It's not as bad as it's been, but it can be rough. It certainly can be rough and you have to use a lot of toll roads. And the problem is the roads in Northern Virginia are not exactly that well laid out relative to where you usually have to go. That's another thing that I have found. It's like, why do I have to do this huge horseshoe loop to get from point A to point B a lot of times on a road? It's just, it's, it's, it's just the, the result of when the roads were built, where the pla when the places were built, vice versa. But I'd say take it. I, I think generally it's pretty good and uh, a big improvement from Southern California in many ways. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, other than the weather. So uh, I see some people chiming in here in the live chat as well on this. But uh, go to Dave here. Dave asks, hey, Jacob, is there a situation where someone should take back their ex uh, after breaking up with them because they've cheated? I can't imagine that there is, although I'm sure there are exceptions to every rule, but I, I can't imagine one now. You don't give very much detail here. It's kind of asked in the third person, this question. Um, but I, I can't imagine one off the top of my head. Maybe people in the chat can chime in here. And uh, and offer their 
offer their input. We're going to get here to the uh, report on Richard Byrd. Just uh, one more question here from Lena. Uh, Lena asks, can you talk about how you selected Arthur and Eva? Well, those are, of course, my my canines. Uh, Arthur is a Doberman uh, pincher, European Doberman. And Eva is a Belgian Malinois, really a, a Belgian Malinois Dutch Shepherd. I guess her father's technically a Dutch Shepherd and her mother's technically a Malinois. It's all those Dutch KNPV lines, though. So uh, it's really kind of when you talk about KNPV Malinois and KNPV uh, Dutch Shepherds, you're really talking about mostly the same thing for the most part, a kind of a color difference. And some people will say a slight temperament difference. I, I don't know that there's a measurable difference in temperament. But, uh, you know, how did I select them? Well, I had a very particular purpose for them. I would say, uh, given particularly the work I've done with Predator DC and in politics and all of that, uh, if one person needs a couple of very good guard dogs, both for around, you know, in public and uh, at home, it would be me. And they do a spectacular job at that. It's been a lot of training, a lot of hard work. Uh, if you want these kind of dogs that are, that are you know, working line dogs, I, I will caution you you better have the same kind of energy that these dogs have. Uh, and, you know, it's like people will talk about, don't get a Malinois, don't get a Doberman, you can't handle it. they're too high energy, don't get a working line dog, don't, don't, don't. Well, okay, maybe that's good advice for the average person. What I will say is, is rather than arguing about what the dogs are, I think most people can agree on what they are. They're high energy, they're relentless, they can be stubborn, they can be uh, dominant, I mean, you, you could end up with a truly dominant dog, and that relationship could be very tough. If you aren't a dominant person, they will become the alpha reluctantly. They don't want to make decisions, but they, but they will, and that's never a good thing. What I would say is rather than arguing about what the dogs are, what is, what is most important is to understand what you are. Are you high energy? Are you dominant? Do you have a real need for them, a real purpose for them? Uh, that you can train them for and employ them in constantly. Because the dogs are what they are, but but that can either be your, your worst nightmare or or a great a great thing for you. It can be a great uh, thing that the dogs are high energy. It can be a great thing that the dogs are uh, dominant. I mean, I wouldn't want low energy dogs. They wouldn't be able to keep up with me. I wouldn't want a golden doodle. So these are all factors that you have to um, consider for yourself. But... Um, you know, that is, uh, that is something to, to think about. Somebody says, uh, get rid of the dogs, have kids. Yeah, the kids are, kids are on the way uh, very soon, I think. But uh, the dogs are doing very well. Dogs are doing very well. Um, so anyway, anyway, getting into this here, I want to talk about the Richard Burr report here. Uh, new documents come out. These are, these are unsealed. Unsealed FBI docs reveal flurry of calls and stock trades by Senator Burr in early 2020. This is a report from CNBC. Uh, it says, after two years of lawsuits, a court finally unsealed key evidence from the FBI's 2020 investigation of North Carolina Senator Richard Burr for allegedly trading stocks based on non-public information. Public records at the time show that Burr abruptly liquidated more than half of his and his wife's equity holdings in February 2020, when most of the world had yet to focus on the looming coronavirus crisis. Burr was ultimately not charged with breaking any laws, but the newly released records show FBI agents believed Burr had committed insider trading and securities fraud. The most compelling new evidence in the flurry of calls and texts between Burr, his wife Brooke Burr, and her brother Gerald Foth and Foth's wife that took place on the same days that both Foth's and Burr's sold off hundreds of thousands of dollars in stock right before the market plunged. Okay, so they have the call logs. You know, this is this is interesting, though. You look at the, the CNBC perspective on this, and it's like, well, whatever the FBI agents believe, that's what's relevant, not what a grand jury finds uh, to be relevant as far as trading, not the fact that nobody's ever been charged, not the fact that nobody's ever been convicted. It's just what FBI agents believe, miscellaneous unnamed FBI agents. So it is, uh, it is hard to, uh, uh, to get your, your mind around that. But what this appeared to be is that Burr, and there were other uh, congressmen, senators who did the same, got briefings about the pandemic. Uh, of course, Burr uh, was, at the time, the chair of the Senate Intel Committee, so he got briefed. He's part of the Gang of Eight, got the highest level briefings from CIA, from ODNI, from NSA, etc. 
He gets the highest level Intel briefings. He decides to sell off all of his stock. They say that it made the difference of tens of thousands of dollars that he would have otherwise lost. So tens of thousands of dollars usually for a U.S. senator is not a great deal of money. Uh, but I think ultimately they couldn't prove intent. That would have been the, the key thing here is that they couldn't prove intent. And the question is, you know, there, there was information about the coronavirus pandemic taking place. In fact, I remember that in February of 2020, I was in uh, New Hampshire with Jack Berkman. This was the day of the primary. And uh, I had bought a box of masks for comedic effect, really. And it, I had to go to three CVSs to find them because all the Chinese residents of Boston were buying them all up. And I said, Jack, should we walk in wearing masks and like freak everyone out? I said, no, that's too crazy. We can't wearing masks. That's too nuts. We will look like crazies. Nobody's wearing masks. We can't do that. It's crazy. And just like a month later, it was like mandatory masks, of course. But it is uh, it is interesting to, to recall that. But so the bottom line is there was talk about it of it in the media. And what you would have to prove is that this set of trades was based solely on or primarily on or in any form on the material non-public information and not on public information. And I think that's probably where the FBI fell short in being able to, to make a case. But it is a new report out. There's a lot of insider trading that goes on in Congress. Everyone's seen it. Nancy Pelosi's trading is among the most flagrant, uh, where she, you know, she's going to make a decision on a bill. She buys up a bunch of NVIDIA stock. Then she says, we're going to support Chips Plus on the floor the next day and then sells it off. I mean, the insider trading that goes on with Nancy Pelosi at all levels is, is tremendous. And most of it you never hear about. Most of it you never hear about. I think that only recently you've, you've even been able to find these records publicly. Uh, more often, they have been uh, hidden away. More often, they've been hidden away. So uh, this person says here in the chat, I personally think Wall Street was more briefed uh, with the pandemic than Congress in the initial days. What could Congress have known that their financial advisors didn't? Yeah, that's that's a good point as well. I mean, and if you had really known what was going on, if you had been that smart, if your CIA briefers had been all of that smart, what you would have been doing is you would have been securing massive margin loans to go in and buy stock in the next month or two is what you really would have wanted to do is buy stock over the next several months, not sell it. Uh, so that's the other part of this. Now, you could say, well, you'd sell it and then you'd buy it back. But if you know, if you really knew what was going to happen, I don't think anybody knew for sure what was going to happen uh, at all. I mean, that was the, that was the main problem. I, I, I'd like to go back. I mean, I can watch my old shows on Censored.TV. My show really started, I think, the beginning of April when the lockdowns were first beginning back then, episode one. Talked a lot about that. So... Uh, that's that's the latest news out about that. Did you see this poll? I don't know the credibility of this poll or this survey in the last week, but there was a poll out. It said almost one in four Democrats believe men can get pregnant. This is from WPA Intelligence. Uh, this is uh, really uh, unbelievable. The, the statement is some men can get pregnant. They're asking, is that true? Is it false? Uh, Democrats, 22% of them say that it's true. 78% say it's false. What was perhaps most illuminating, though, in this whole poll is white Democrat women with a college education. Among that group, 36%, 36% says that men can get pregnant. They say that men can get pregnant. Uh, whereas uh, Democrats, broadly, only 22% say that is true. White college Democrat women, 36% to 64, 36% say it's true that some men can get pregnant. That was rather unbelievable. It shows uh, what people are being uh, told at these in these colleges. I mean, it's just totally out of control, uh, the level of indoctrination, the level of brainwashing that takes place in these colleges and universities. It is uh, really quite unreal, really quite unbelievable. Uh, I want to go to uh, a video here. Uh, that, that came to my attention last week. I don't know. I don't think the video came out in the last week. Uh, it could be older, but perhaps it did. I don't think it did, though. And this is a video out uh, from Michael Saylor. Uh, Michael Saylor, of course, the, the CEO of MicroStrategy, perhaps the biggest uh, 
Bitcoin perma bull, uh, the guy who said mortgage your house, buy Bitcoin, uh, uh, sell everything you own, buy Bitcoin, all that guy. Okay, so this is a video from Michael Saylor. I want to play for you here. Uh, I think you'll find this. And I want to talk about this in more depth. What do you do when the government tries to tax your Bitcoin? And at the end of the day, you could tell everybody go fuck themselves. You can put it in your head, memorize the freaking key, right? And it's here. And then, you know, the classic Bitcoiner response is, oh, yeah, my Bitcoin, uh, I lost it in a boating accident. You ever heard that phrase? It's, it's kind of a trope, but what it means is at the end of the day, if you push me too far, I lost it. It's gone. So there's uh, Michael Saylor saying, uh, you know, basically that your Bitcoin is on a private wallet, let's say. I mean, if it's not on a place like Coinbase where the government can just tell Coinbase to give it to them. And uh, it's in your head. You have a password in your head. It is important to point out he, he resigned as CEO of MicroStrategy a few weeks ago. Uh, and that's how you would prevent somebody from taking your Bitcoin. Well, of course, uh, recently, the uh, District of Columbia AG, a newly created position, uh, sued Michael Saylor uh, for $25 million in allegedly unpaid income taxes to the District of Columbia, saying uh, that uh, basically the, the essence of the suit, it, there's not a lot of information. Basically, it says that Saylor... Uh, claimed not to live in the District of Columbia, claimed he lived in Florida or other places, and in fact, did live in the District of Columbia. That is the claim uh, from the DC AG, uh, suing him for $25 million in, in unpaid income taxes from the DC AG. So that is out recently. Now, you know, what I, what I wanted to cover here is, is Michael Saylor's claim correct? Is your government secure? Or is your, is your Bitcoin secure from the government taking it? Your government's not secure. Is, is your Bitcoin secure from the government coming in and seizing it? Well, a latest story in, in what has been a string of stories would suggest not. Uh, this is a report from uh, Ars Technica. It says, Feds claw back 30 million of cryptocurrency stolen by North Korean hackers. Blockchain analysis keeps getting better. Expect more seizures to come. That's the headline from Ars Technica. Feds claw back 30 million of cryptocurrency stolen by North Korean hackers. Now, the report says here, cryptocurrency analytics firm Chain Analysis, or Chainalysis, I'm just going to, I mean, Chainalysis, Jesus, uh, what a name, said on Thursday that it helped the U.S. government seize 30 million worth of digital coins that North Korean-backed hackers stole earlier this year, from the developer of the non-fungible token-based game Axie Infinite, uh, when accounting for more than 50%, when accounting for the more than 50% fall of cryptocurrency prices since the theft occurred in March, the seizure represents only about 12% of the funds stolen. The people who pulled off the heist transferred 173,000 Ethereum, worth about 594 million at the time and 25.5 million in USDC stablecoin, making it one of the biggest cryptocurrency thefts ever. So clearly, if, you're, if you're, you have cryptocurrency on a platform, that platform can be hacked and the cryptocurrency can be stolen. We know that. It says here, the seizures demonstrate that it has become more difficult for bad actors to successfully cash out their ill-gotten crypto gains. Aaron Plante senior director of investigations at Chainalysis wrote, we have proven that with the right blockchain analysis tools, world-class investigators and compliance professionals, uh, we can collaborate to stop even the most sophisticated hackers and launders. The FBA attributed the theft to Lazarus, the name used to track a hacking group backed by and working on behalf of the North Korean government. According to Axie Infinity uh, developer Sky Mavis, the hackers pulled off the transfers after gaining access to five of nine private keys held by transaction validators for the Ronin Network's Crossbridge, a dedicated blockchain for the game. Okay, so there's all these pictures and things that the pictures don't make much more sense than the, than the sentences in terms of how complicated they are. So, I mean, I, it just talks about this here. Uh, the hackers uh, then initiated an elaborate laundering process that involved transferring the funds to more than 12,000 different cryptocurrency addresses in an attempt to obfuscate the stolen coins movement. In Thursday's post, Plante wrote, North Korea's typical DeFi laundering technique has roughly five stages. One, stolen ether sent to intermediary wallets. Two, uh, either mixed in batches using 
ether rather mixed in batches uh, using tornado cash ether swapped for bitcoin bitcoin mixed in batches bitcoin deposited to crypto to fiat services for cash out so i mean the first question that arises here and many of you know that i have always been a cryptocurrency skeptic i have never uh, been associated with cryptocurrency in any way it's not something that i have ever found useful it's not my thing but the, I guess the first question is here, if cryptocurrency is so wonderful, then why would this group be so determined to exchange it for fiat currency? I mean, why do we still talk about cryptocurrency in reference to what it's worth in terms of fiat currency? I mean, that's an obvious question. Now, you know, the, the Bitcoin proponents will have their answers for those questions. And I'm not saying that their answers are totally invalid. And by the way, I mean, the, 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 the criticisms of fiat currency that are brought up by crypto proponents, those aren't invalid either. The, the question is whether cryptocurrencies or whether particular cryptocurrencies are the solution to those problems or not, whether they actually remediate those problems or not. My general conclusion is no, they don't. But we continue here. It says, last month, the U.S. Treasury Department sanctioned the virtual currency mixer Tornado Cash after finding it had been used to launder more than $7 billion worth of virtual currency since its creation in 2019. $455 million of that sum was connected to the heist against Axie Infinity. So you have these tumblers or, or, or mixers, they call them in different cases, that sort of allow you to put Bitcoin in and get it back out to a different wallet anonymously through various uh, technologies and uh, cross-chain uh, sort of leaps, etc., it says, since then, Lazarus Group moved away from the popular Ethereum mixer, instead leveraging DeFi services to chain hop or switch between several kinds of cryptocurrencies in a single transaction. Bridges serve an important function to move digital assets between chains. Most of these platforms uh, are completely legitimate. Lazarus appears to be using bridges in an attempt to obscure the source of funds. With chain analysis tools, these cross-chain fund movements are easily traced. On Twitter, Ronin Network says it will take some time for these funds to be returned to the Treasury. Plante said that much of the stolen funds remain in wallets under the hackers' control. We look forward to continuing to work with cryptocurrency with the cryptocurrency ecosystem to prevent them and other illicit actors from cashing out their funds. Okay, so basically what they try to prevent are, are the hackers from cashing out of the cryptocurrencies. So they have to cash out, presumably. Why don't they just use the cryptocurrencies to do whatever they need to do? Well, because you can't. You just can't. You can't do a whole lot with cryptocurrencies on a large scale. I mean, you couldn't run a state on cryptocurrency. It doesn't work. It doesn't work as of yet. Too slow, too expensive, too volatile, too unreliable, too anonymous, frankly. It's a big problem. So really, though, I mean, my, my sort of reprieve here is not to discuss the pluses and minuses of cryptocurrency. What I wanted to figure out or at least pose the question is, how exactly does the government go about clawing back cryptocurrency? How does that work exactly? How does it work? It's happened numerous times. Uh, it does happen multiple times. For example, you go back to a report from MarketWatch. Uh, this is a report back uh, from June of last year, June of 2021, concerning the Colonial Pipeline hack. Uh, it says here, the filings show that the FBI agent used blockchain explorers to track the movement of the crypto to nearly two dozen addresses. A private key for a virtual wallet linked to one of the addresses where the cryptocurrency sat for some time was obtained by the FBI. But the agency didn't disclose how it obtained the key, which serves as a password for the wallet. A crypto wallet can be used to store Bitcoin, uh, user addresses and other private key information. Advocates of the blockchain technology have long touted the traceability of distributed public ledger as one of the counterpoint to say that crypto is largely used for illicit activities. It says here, quote, this action by U.S. authorities demonstrates the value of blockchain analytics to trace down the proceeds of crime and cryptocurrency uh, and to ensure ransomware does not pay for criminals behind it, Robinson wrote. How do they exactly do this clawback? They don't want to say how they do it. I have one guess. And it is just a guess. It's not based on any tip-off original reporting. And, and maybe some of you out there listening to the show know. Maybe you can email in jacobbull.org slash contact jacob at jacobbull.org and let me know. 
But one thing I suspect might be happening is that you have these sort of tumblers, these these mixers, they have different names for them, where Bitcoin goes in or another cryptocurrency goes in, it gets mixed all about between various wallets, and then it comes out the other side. And for a fee, it comes out the other side to you, the same person who put it in. Many of them are run on the dark web. Several of them have actually been shut down by the US government. They're based on an island and the, and the federal government goes and literally seizes the computers and shuts them down. That's happened a couple of times over the past several years. One way in which the government might be able to claw back funds associated with illicit usages, in, in my view, is you, know, you, you compromise these mixers. Rather than just shutting them down and seizing the computers, you have to ask yourself, why is this big mixer or big uh, tumbler still operating versus another one not? One way you might do that is that you may have a compromise of the tumbler in which uh, the people responsible for operating that mixer, let's just call it a mixer, the person responsible for operating that mixer, they may, in fact, be cooperating with U.S. authorities or U.S. intelligence services. Now, they might be cooperating knowingly or unknowingly. If the NSA or the CIA or the FBI puts a bug of some sort into their systems that exposes their private addresses uh, to some of the wallets and some of the technology and some of the passwords that they use, perhaps then that system is compromised. And maybe it's only that those compromises are only exploited, they're only used in certain instances where the federal government determines it makes enough sense to risk the exposure of the fact that they've compromised the systems in order to bring back those funds, as they appear to have done in the Colonial Pipeline case, and as they appear to have done recently with about $30 million in this other case. So, so one option is that it could be compromised in that sense. The other way it could be compromised is that if if this group is, is looking to obtain all these wallets and use them, perhaps you can slip certain wallets into the mix that the government maintains knowledge of the private keys on. Sort of feed in some facilities for these mixers to use that you know about and have control over. You, you feed them into their system as far as they might be trying to, to buy them up in batches and buy them quickly on the dark web, and you feed some into the system. So those are both ways I can imagine in which the, the U.S. government could claw back cryptocurrency. Now, in the case of the compromise, like I said, it could be knowing compromise or unknowing compromise. It could also be, I described unknowing compromise, hacks and things like this. Unknowing compromise could be you compromise one of the you know, employees too. That could be another version. Knowing compromise could be you, you're actually working with the people that run the mixer. The U.S. government says, listen, we know you're doing this. We don't like it. We can haul you off to jail today or you can work with us and we'll have a relationship. And when we want something, you'll give it to us. And an example of how that sort of worked out recently, and we covered this on the old Censored.TV show, uh, was uh, the instance of these encrypted phones. And there was a big story about the encrypted phones on 60 Minutes Australia. And I don't know why they exposed that they, in fact, did this. Uh, but they had, uh, basically what happened is there, were, there was a phone system started by uh, a, a guy um, who... Basically, he, he came out with his own brand of phones, and he said, you can buy these phones. They are totally secure and encrypted through ways X, Y, and Z. Okay? This is uh, one way in, in which the government compromised these things. So they have these phones. Um, I think there, there was one company called, uh, what was it called here? This was a phone called, I'm just trying to find the brand of the phone here. You can look up the report by 60 Minutes Australia. It says more than 800 arrested after FBI secretly uh, set up a compromise. Basically, the, the important part about what happened is there are a couple of these phone operators out there, not just one, that were selling these allegedly encrypted phones. And the story goes that the FBI went to the uh, progenitor of these encrypted phones, and they said, well, we have you on tax issues, or we have you on this, we have you on that, or whatever the case is. They then went to that guy and said, you have to cooperate with us. You give us the keys to the encryption. You continue to promote the phones. Meanwhile, the FBI puts out a statement condemning the devices, other police agencies around the world. This is a global effort, 60 plus agencies all around the world. They managed to keep it secret, which is very impressive. Uh, they go and they say, we're condemning these phones. They're illegal here in Australia. You can't use them. Well, when you do that, the criminals want them even more. So they start buying up all these phones. Now you know who all the criminals are who are using the phones who you're interested in. 
You can read everything they do very easily straight from the phone company because it pipes it straight up to the phone company who runs them. And then they swept in and arrested 800 people all over the world, uh, organized crime figures, uh, drug figures mostly, uh, Australian neo-Nazis, uh, biker gangs, you name it, who had all purchased these phones. So the government condemning the phones, people claiming the phones are great, they're so encrypted, they're wonderful for crime. The criminals bought them up like mad. They used them and they weren't secure at all. And so they, they, they compromised the system. The same thing, yeah, there's, there's Anom, there's an Anom phone. Uh, there were various phones out there. Somebody said in the chat, Anom, other phones as well. And so various systems out there, and they were all compromised by the government in these cases, uh, terribly compromised. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. They were, they were compromised at a central level. By the way, if you really do want an encrypted phone, you can use something called POC. Now, everybody you're talking to has to also have it. You have to have a great deal of know-how to set it up. Um, and you have to ensure that that person on the other side isn't compromised and that your server administration is very good and all of that. But there are phones called POC phones. Um, if you really want encrypted phone, it's not something I use. I have no need for it. But if you want, if you really desperately want an encrypted phone, uh, you can use something called a, a POC phone. And uh, you just look this up. Like look up Hytera POC. Hytera uh, POC. Uh, there are phones out there and systems, if you really want that for your business or any particular purpose, uh, they do they do exist. They do exist out there. So it is something you, you can set up. Uh, it requires a lot of know-how. It requires technical expertise to, to get it running. And you have to have several people that, you know, you're talking to on a regular basis. And none of them, you know, if you're texting them and then they decide to show people the text, that can be compromised. But you can really set it up. There is, there is such a thing. Uh, it's kind of sort of the technology that, that Secret Service uses and other government agencies use. Presidential Communications Office at the Pentagon uh, uses it. Um, it also allows you to run on a much more broad set of networks, so 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G. They have more uh, antennas and, and radios in them that utilize a, a, a broader set of spectrum all over the world. So there's other benefits. So you can do it. Uh, but I wanted to bring you that report. It's, uh, it was wonderful to, to have you here today on The Jacob Wool Show. Uh, it's been great to have you support the show. Get the links out there to everyone. Subscribe on the podcast apps. Rate us five stars. Subscribe. Notifications hit the bell. All that stuff. I don't like to be gratuitous with all of that. We're going to grow this broadcast uh, little by little. I'll be back here Thursday at 2 p.m. with more news and analysis, more coverage. Uh, send in your notes, jacob at jacobwool.org. And of course, you can support on PayPal, jacob at jacobwool.org or on Cash App, Real Jacob Wool. Thanks so much for joining today. And I'll see you on Thursday on The Jacob Wool Show.